0: Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball campus in Los Angeles. It's my great pleasure and honor to welcome Rabbi Amy Eilberg, who is the first woman ordained as a conservative rabbi by the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. She also serves as the Jewish co director of Muslim-Jewish Connection, which is a program working to build relationships between Muslims and Jews in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's also the author of From Enemy to Friend, Jewish Wisdom and the Pursuit of Peace, which came out in 2014. Rabbi Alberg, thank you for joining us for this conversation.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: The first question that uh, popped to my mind before I even got into researching some of the topics that I knew would be motivating for you was, naturally enough, your ordination, but not your ordination necessarily stum, just itself, but in the context of a mean-spirited joke that an Orthodox person once posed to me, which was, what's the difference between conservative and reform? About 10 years. And so the joke was almost almost on cue the span of time between Sally Prezan's ordination and yours. And they're making an argument which is intended to be petty humor, meaning that everything that's not orthodox is all the same, some liberal mishmash of whatever. But, like humor often can do, it may or may not pick up on a meaningful kernel of the relationship between movementally speaking the conservative movement and the reform movement but also arguably non-orthodoxy in America in general your ordination and Sally Prezan's ordination insofar as that was the framework of of the joke uh, may indeed instantiate the issue which is the confluence of really America's two largest Jewish movements and together the majority of American Judaism, certainly the majority of American affiliated Judaism, so I want to ask you what your feelings are about the ways in which the main statistically the main mainstreams of our religion in this country may be unnecessarily fractured or not
1: don 't get me started. I think it's really tragic that Jews call each other names. Uh, we do it a lot, and it's not just they do it to us, but I think we do it to them as well. Uh, arguably, that's why the temple was destroyed. Right. You know, that's right. how many right. tragedies have happened, writ small and writ large. Right. We shouldn't be calling each other names. So here's how I, I understand um, Sally Prezan's ordination in 1972 and then Sandy Eisenberg-Sasso's ordination at the Reconstruction Spinnacle College in 74 as absolutely clear and warranted fairly quick and timely responses to the secular feminist movement. It's just clear it would have been ridiculous to wait any longer, much as for those of us who were waiting for the conservative movement um, to make the decision when it was obvious to us, also that the conservative movement would violate its own raison d'etre if it didn't follow suit, but not because we were following reform, but because it's also the right thing to do. So it was very frustrating to wait. And in retrospect, the weight indicated a really fundamental difference between the reform and and conservative movements. Not to essentialize. I mean, there's a spectrum of Reform Jews and there's a spectrum of Conservative Jews, and there are right, people but on the edge. The you know, categories
0: mean something. Categories
1: mean something. The Conservative movement needed to go through an extended period of the scholars studying the material. What does the title rabbi mean? Is it permissible or not permissible for a woman to carry the title rabbi and to look at each of the functions associated with the contemporary rabbinate and have the extended study exercise and then debating one another and publishing papers? and all of that, which is what we do, you know, in the the conservative movement. And and then there um, was also, this was new in the conservative movement, there was a listening tour around the country for for two years and so on. So in a sense, although for those of us who were feminists as of the 1970s and conservative Jews, it seemed obvious that to the extent that the conservative movement's raison d'etre is very, very deep loyalty to Halakha, on the one hand, and understanding of the historical process of formation and reformation of the Halakha, depending on the circumstances in which the Jewish people find themselves that that what we are about is the balance of uh, tradition and And historical change. We needed to not do it right away. Right. We needed to really take some time to think, is this really something passing? What do the texts really say? So in that sense, uh, I, some of my women colleagues might be <laughs> really upset to hear me say it. To, the, in that sense, the, the lag time was significant.
0: Right. I mean, I hear you saying that t- to an outsider, in this case an orthodox perspective, 10 years is a short amount of time in the scheme of things, and it might look like an inevitability and therefore represent... The confluence between the movements, whereas from the inside of the movements, especially from your perspective, where you actually experienced the weight, it actually illustrated the difference between the movements, because there was a process which the conservative movement was beholden to, which the reform movement was... We were which we treasure which, right. we treasure. which we treasure. I mean, identify. we, the right.
1: question is, who is we? You know, the conservative movement, there's a huge difference between the leader, sure. the seminary, the leadership, yes. the rabbis, and, and all and the, the only uh, well. you know, yeah. But the movements publicly espoused view. So, look, there's no doubt that there are many examples of the conservative movement following the reform movement.
0: Um, Uh, Yeah, I don't even mean following because I'm not so interested in the chronology of A, then B. I'm interested in putting aside the pettiness of the joke and taking seriously the concern that mainstream American non-orthodoxy, as instantiated by the ordination of women, has too much in common to justify our institutional and movemental separation, the continuation of it. I hear you saying au contraire, that halachic investigation.
1: Attachment to the text right. is so primary for us. Right.
0: Except insofar as even I, who consider myself inside of this conversation, as opposed to the orthodox person, meaning one of the two parties that is being measured against one another in terms of time, I succumb to the sense of inevitability if you buy it, if you buy the inevitability argument, that ex post facto casts aspersions on the investigation because the investigation seems to have a foregone conclusion, and therefore it's not truly an investigation. It's, a, it's an exercise. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's what it right, was. Right, that
1: wasn't the intention.
0: No, i I I'm not. I'm really not, wasn't the no, intention no, and the spirit of it. Yeah, this is not a I critique. I mean,
1: some of us we're hoping that they would right. come to the right answer, right. you know. Right, no,
0: and, and it's easy to say it after the fact. I, I'm not actually characterizing it that way. I wouldn't presume to do that, I assure you. But I am wearing the glasses whereby it looks like that. I can, I can, I can put them on at least. And I can see why it feels that way to many, many people.
1: So let me just say two other things. One is that the Orthodox movement is not a monolith either. The distance between, you know, Haridim on the one hand and, you know, modern Orthodox, even Yeshiva Chovah, Torah, there's a world of difference. And the other piece is I do think that our identities are distinct. And I do think there are things about which we can and should collaborate Mm. So two examples, and one very obvious example is that, uh, uh, just one example that I know of is that HEC in New York and JTS in New York are doing some things in collaboration. The other example is Israel, despite the fact that we conservative Jews do not want to confirm the bias of, you know, all Israelis that reform atem you know, right, reform means non-orthodox, no, actually, I'm not reform, I'm not actually conservative, but but in Israel, it is so clear that, we have so much in common, and we should be and, working and together. We, we, we do, and, in many and, ways, and we do. I think, I think but we, we could, could, could and more. should more. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that's that's how it looks to me: is more collaboration, but collaboration right. with understanding that we're we're, we're not we're not going to become the same because there are right. some differences. Right. I,
0: I take your point on the essentialization. I, I, I am perhaps a bit more comfortable with categorical speak than than maybe you are. But it is precisely because of that that I take your I take your point. Because I'll tell you what, professionally, socially slash professionally, I can't tell you how often, I don't know if you experience this, but I do. I get comments left and right about why are the two movements still separate and embedded in that question is everything you and I have just been speaking about. Mm -hmm.
1: I think that that question, when you know, when it's not a an, an epithet, you know, when it's not an insult, but it's a you know serious question, is really an invitation to go deeper about how does each of these movements define themselves. We're separate because there's some differences in the way we understand our relationship to halakha, to Jewish life, to history, to Torah. A laity in Reform synagogue and a laity in the Conservative synagogue down the street are. Very often, not very different. Yes. the The conservative members of the conservative congregation have, may have different expectations of the rabbi of what the rabbi does and right. doesn't right. do, and either whatever. So some people. Uh,
0: members. Are oh. members
1: of both, right. and they belong to one or the other because of family, his, right. generational reasons, right. whatever. Right. So in that sense, there isn't too much difference. But for for people who really want to know, like how, how did these, how did the separation, how did the parting of the ways right. come, and why, and to how, how does that express itself in the way we think about issues? Um, now, I mean, our, our next conversation, the conservative movement, or the, the next emerging conversation, the conservative movement is about intermarriage and yes. and rabbinic affiliation. Uh, yes. Clearly, um, so it'll it'll play out again. This this question no, will play out again. It,
0: it will. It will, for sure. Looking at your recent work, it's evident that peacemaking and peace work is really driving your work now. And I think a lot of it evokes sensibilities about Israel-Palestine, but I'm also aware that, the, that this is not necessarily about Israel-Palestine. It's about where, wherever we need peace, which was everywhere. Nevertheless, without making Israel-Palestine the topic, it, It is an emotional or or moral framework for me to ask the question of you, which is, is there such a thing as peace when people of equal stature, but who are living in a situation where one has power over the other? Is peace possible or does peace presuppose something that preempts that power structure?
1: What does peace mean? And the Commentaries, as, as you well know, there's a plethora of answers to that question. People who feel burned by uh, recent failures of the peace process between Israelis and Palestinians, for example, feel angry at the very sound of the word peace in the sense that peace either means a diplomatic agreement or means the ultimate oh, c'est bin broma, the kind of peace, the me- kind of messianic peace mm-hmm. that that only God can make. Mm-hmm. So does peace mean necessarily something a diplomatic, diplomatic resolution or does peace mean the ultimate end of conflict that can only happen when he- all human beings are transformed, right? Those are two possible ways to use the term peace. I was just telling some people in a class, every Ten or fifteen years of my life, I have found that there was there was one verse, usually in the Torah, but in this case in the in the Tanakh in the Hebrew Bible, that has been the animating message of my life and work. And for this fifteen-year period, it has been uh, from Psalm 34, Mihaisha Chaim," who is the person who um, desires life, do good, turn away from evil, Bakesh Shalom V'Radfe," who seek peace and pursue it. So I feel quite sure that when the psalmist wrote that, he wasn't addressing monarchs or heads of state. That's addressed to individual human beings. So, so peace means, as you say, how we carry ourselves in relationship to other people and even perhaps uh, with ourselves and with God. Right. So that's part of peacemaking. And the pursuit, these active verbs about seeking and pursuing peace, also suggest to me that peace is not something static. But is a dynamic process, so it's not just the endpoint. That oh, how sweet you're so naive that you think we're going to or uh, ways in which security-conscious it's it's people. An orientation
0: and, a, and it's an orientation. It's a it's a
1: life practice. Right. It's a it's a personal practice. And out of the mystical tradition, there is there are a number of different voices who talk about peace not being the end of argument, but about being the unity of opposites. That is, either the coexistence of divergent views or even some ultimate convergence, that sense that, These and these are the words of the of the living God, that sort of reaching a point where all of it is one. I mean, this is a bit of a koan, You know, giving me a little headache. How can it be that something and an idea right, and its right, opposite right, right, can right, be right. actually one? So that's a that's a mystics version, um, but taking it one step down from you know from those mystical heights, the notion that peace is wholeness in the presence of diversity and diversity of persons and divergence of views, it's coexistence.
0: When you do your work. Do you have a definition of peace or is your definition of peace contingent given is it situational?
1: Yeah, it is contextual and I never work on diplomatic issues. That's just not who I am in life. Am I sometimes maybe I am sometimes really thinking about Osa Shalom Bimarma of me, mm-hmm. there'd be some, All you right. know, divine kind of peace that will descend here. But all of it, you know, sort of asking myself, you know, what's really, what's possible here between people or on a synagogue board of directors? So I'm, I'm holding a lot of those definitions simultaneously. But then, to come back to your question of power imbalance, that, for me, raises the question of what's the relationship between peace and justice? The parallel to that verse in the Psalms, seek peace and pursue it, is, you know, the one other mitzvah of value that we are commanded to pursue is tzedek, is tzedek tzedek, 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 tzedek. tir justice, justice, shall you pursue. There's a midrash that says, oh, you know, there are only two most Torah law is case law. You know, if you do such and such a thing, then mm-hmm. then do this. If you find a lost object, return right. it. If you build a building, do it in this right. way. It's, so all, it's all, if it's you, all uh,
0: grounded in reality. In, in,
1: in reality, in particular um, cases, except there are a few other places where the Torah, you know, speaks in more banner headlines. And it's tempting then to think that peace and... Justice are equivalent somehow, so that the contemporary equivalent of that is no justice, no peace, which many people right. think means uh, they're the same thing. In fact, there are schools of conflict studies now that articulate that, which to me makes no sense because, by definition, different parties to a conflict, whether it's an interpersonal conflict in a marriage, you, know, you take out the garbage, not take out the garbage, right? Or you know, writ large international. By definition people on opposite sides of a conflict understand justice differently. If they understood who and what is right in the same way, they wouldn't be in conflict. So by definition, peace and justice are are in conflict. Now, the question that you're asking about power imbalance does say we can't really have peace without taking the elements of justice into account. But but I I just want to say, but... To, to say the end point of the peace process is to do justice as if that were a perfect abstraction about which both parties w- would agree, I, I think. No, I think because justice is also contextual and seen differently by different parties. You don't have any kind of real international peace without seriously addressing both sides' justice concerns. And we certainly shouldn't wait. We can't wait until those are are all taken care of. I mean, mean, in a sense, that's one of the arguments in the anti-normalization movement people in the Palestinian community and some of their allies abroad will say to Palestinians, we will boycott you if you engage in collaborative work with, with Israelis, because that dialogue could serve to make the Israelis feel like, well, look, right, we're doing right, so well, course. we're doing dialogue, right. we're doing collaborative we'll work, work, whatever. The... Many of the Israeli peacem- peacemakers, ground-level ground peacemakers that I know, relationship builders, and some of the Palestinian Mm-hmm. Relationship building folks that, that I know say, that's just the height of absurdity. How are you ever? How are you going to convince a society to let go of its privilege and to let go of its power without conversation, without more understanding? Well, so I'm just going yeah, to the question. Presumably they're
0: not trying to convince anybody. They're trying to achieve something, but they're not trying to convince.
1: So how is that going to happen?
0: Without peace, other means.
1: Without engagement how could oh, that mean, happen, happen without engagement
0: you, you can engage with conflict you can oh. pursue not peace and get what you want if you think you can get it it's just a, stra- it's, a it's a tactic or strategy so it's, it's a cost benefit analysis so it's not absurd it's different it's a different goal you are inevitably bound up in dealing with that goal meaning the goal of the less empowered party seriously considering that option uh, Absolutely. And when you have this power imbalance?
1: Uh, absolutely. You have to, otherwise.
0: Uh, otherwise, you're not being realistic. Or truthful. Yeah, really. right, 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 right. Or even minimally intellectually honest, that's right.
1: And, and you're not listening either, without which you're not taking seriously the other side's experience, without which there right. also isn't peace, uh, by any definition, yeah. really.
0: I often think of the Native Americans and the United States. I think that there's definitely a resignation. An acceptance on the part of the first peoples here in the Americas with utter fatalism. That is not true of the Palestinians. I think the, many Palestinians do have dreams of an irredentist revival that excludes Israelis and Jews altogether. I don't think Native Americans think that. And in that in that case, you have an interesting way to ask my question, which is: you do have practical peace, meaning the absence of conflict, but you you do also have this gross historical and contemporary power imbalance is that piece? I,
1: I agree with you more than I disagree that, that clearly the you know radical difference in power between Israel and Palestine militarily and economically is, is absolutely a central feature of the, of the conflict of the, of the status quo, no question about that. And I, I am personally left of center on Israeli-Palestinian politics, mm. notwithstanding what I'm about to say. I think that Palestinians also need to understand deeply, and I know sometimes it's it's hard to ask and maybe in some ways unfair to ask people who feel like they live under oppression to listen better mm-hmm. to those that they right. think have more of the power, but no question that structurally Israel's power, as I said, militarily, economically, in terms of international support and so on, um, There's there's no comparison. And the language is all loaded but let's say from an israeli perspective terrorism mm-hmm. i could call that i could frame that differently oh, but, for, well, but from that from yeah. this from this perspective from an israeli perspective palestinian ter- terrorism has been enormously powerful particularly in when waged against people yes. with
0: right. trauma of their own right. it's a relatively effective tool
1: and in some way at, at least Emotionally, existentially, it doesn't equalize the power imbalance. But the Palestinians do hold power over yeah. Israelis, yeah. in that sense as well. So many Palestinians are tired of hearing that. Hearing that, you know, tell me about the Holocaust again. We won't get anywhere until Palestinians listen. Listen better to yeah. the Jewish reality of victimization, and we certainly won't get anywhere until Israelis listen more to Palestinian experience of victimization.
0: So where does your work today, what realms does it take you into most when, when, in the course of your month or year?
1: My journey in, in being a seeker and pursuer of peace began in the Israeli-Palestinian um, context. It's a story I tell in my book, may I say, a book called From Enemy to Friend, Jewish yes. Wisdom and the Pursuit of Peace. My story began, I was busy doing other things in my, you know, in my life and work and found myself at Neveh Shalom Wa'at Al-Salam, one of the premier Israeli-Palestinian dialogue centers in Israel. I watched a group of kids, this was their flagship program, which a 100 16-year-olds, half of them, Israeli-Jewish half of them, Israeli-Arab is actually the language that the people of that Place use, I'll use that in that, this context. and we're, we're beginning into I get to watch. I got to watch f- from behind a one-way mirror as the kids began a three-day dialogue intensive. The goal of which was not to, to reach common ground, but the goal of which was, was really to take a deep dive into the issues. Uh, I spent about an hour watching from behind the one-way mirror and had this very powerful experience as if God had called me to roll up my sleeves and make myself useful. For the cause of peace, so I kind of stumbled, stumbled out of there, and spent, have spent the next 13 years trying to figure out how, how to respond. So, trying to befriend and learn from and support Israeli and Palestinian grassroots peacemakers has has certainly been a primary passion for me. But since it turns out that I clearly haven't been able to do <laughs> to do much in that in that yeah, realm. You're in good company. Um, yeah. Except that, it, that it's good to it's good to know the people really who are really doing heroic work yeah. um, on the ground and to continue to be megaphones for their yeah. for their work. My primary areas of work on the ground here in America are in interface dialogue. Shortly after that sort of mountaintop revelatory experience, somebody essentially sat me down, had lunch with me, and handed me a job at a Center for Interfaith Learning. And I stopped for, you know, about a minute and said, well, is this really peace work? I really wanted to do Israeli-Palestinian stuff, but of of course it's profoundly peace work. sometimes led us into Israel-Palestine conversation, but it's just so obvious. And I feel that profoundly in kind of self-conscious relationship with people of other religions particularly leaders of other religions we're do- doing this not just because we happen to bump up against each other right. oh i'm jewish you're christian in the grocery store right, but that right. we're doing intentional dialogue we are both practicing the skills of peace building when we enter into that dialogue right. sometimes better and sometimes you know not so well um and we are pursuing a goal of peace as we seek to build relationship with one another so that's a that's a great love of mine and and w- with a particular particular love of Muslim-Jewish engagement. Mm-hmm. And and I must say that over since, since the election of Donald Trump, that's, I mean, I've been doing that, you know, work for some years, and the Jewish-Muslim solidarity feels even more compelling since Trump. And, and the other place where my work has focused has been in working with Jewish communities about how to do peace work within, within their own and civil discourse work within their own synagogues. And that's the context of the, the my synagogues. work. Within the synagogues, to make so I, so I work for the Pardes Institute of Jewish mm-hmm. Studies and um, have led the Pardes Rodev Shalom Communities Program, which is all about asking rabbis in particular and congregations in general what it would look like for a congregation to take seriously the question. How would our synagogue be different if the value articulated and prayed for so often and so powerfully in the tradition of, of pursuing peace in a, in a relational and communal way lay at the center of our communal mission and identity? Uh, so our, our work at the Pardes program is about sharing with communities of rich Jewish texts about constructive conflict and about relational mm-hmm. pursuit of peace and about Jewish ethics of speech midot about the spirit, inner spiritual practice of uh, peacemaking. So there's this text study piece and there's the practice piece sharing of best best practices in the field of how do you use this in the synagogue and what would it look like for the synagogue to be a community of practice around peacemaking. That is to say, you know, sometimes when you walk in the front door of a synagogue of a synagogue, you can sort of smell or feel the culture of it, there's Mm -hmm. something in the air, you feel hospitality, you feel the architecture, the nature of the greeting, the nature of the decor. You breathe in the values Mm -hmm. of the place because they're so rich and thick in in the culture. What would that look like such that the synagogue was a place that inspired individuals to be the best seekers and pursuers of peace that they can be in their lives, and the synagogue is a place to celebrate. Hey, I got it right! I actually, ah, right. surprisingly, got it right this week. Or, yeah, right. or I really had, I really stumbled and had a you know really hard time. that the synagogue be a place where we talk about that? And of course, how do we do community life? How do we live with difference within the synagogue? How could the synagogue be a model of? how to do difference.
0: Right, we love it and experiment and fail and succeed. Right. What does it look like when we do those things? Yeah. So if you were to take a 30,000-foot view, as they say, and look at the United States of America today, what polarity is suffering the greatest rift that needs peace work? Rich, poor, conservative, liberal, rural, urban. What would you name as the neediest Polarity.
1: So that's a wonderful question and, and hard, you know. I'll, I'll give you an answer. Maybe I'll give you two answers oh, with, you, your, you, with you, your permission. You. But then if you ask me tomorrow, I might, you know, I those might those say something different. Um, what comes to me right now um, are, are two things. One is relationship to the other whether the other is the the racial other, Mm -hmm. the national other,
0: the the ethnic other, the
1: immigrant, the refugee, the stranger, and and so on. Hugely painful. Of course, this is erupting all over the world. Yes, it's uh, not just here. And the other that arises is a polarity about how do we understand truth, what constitutes a fact. Right. When are we
0: relativistic? When are we absolutist about truth?
1: And... What kind of experts do we believe and do we not believe? What kind of interpretation of facts Mm -hmm. is a natural part of human thought and human interaction? And what part is, is really just falsehood?
0: My grandfather is quoted in my family as saying his whole life that religion is a matter of degree. And as I grew up, uh, I, I created a rejoinder of my own, which is that religion is a matter of emphasis. What I find in the wake of the election is that if you can get to a conversation of conscience with a political adversary, you could often arrive at an agreement about what the fact is. The, the painful part comes in the way you emphasize it and the other person doesn't emphasize it. And they say, yeah, but. And you're saying, yeah, this is killing me, but for you, it's tertiary. And and then that becomes a, a polarity.
1: And that's endemic to conflict of all kinds, right? I, I say this to people a lot. People say, yeah, what do we do about those people who are you know, living in the world of alternative facts and so on? It is any entrenched, long-lasting conflict, mm-hmm. whether it's marital discord or you know international. People understand certain events differently from different sides of the divide. If they if they understood them the same, they wouldn't be in conflict, right? And given that there are many facts, because there's a history, certain facts are more salient from one side. So, how to distinguish between that? absolutely natural and even normal feature right. of human right, right. Right, right and people intentionally lying and manipulating right. the truth so so that's a that's a finer distinction
0: before we return to the bully pulpit we want to tell you about other programs on the college commons platform for digital learning beyond this podcast which is available to the public at large synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning including online courses live interviews and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the bully pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to... Oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes. And whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. If I may quote you, uh, there was a beautiful turn of phrase. In your article... Caring for the dying and their loved ones. Even after many years of experience, standing in the presence of death still inspires awe in me. How could it be otherwise? Caring for the dying, we find ourselves at the mysterious nexus of life and death. I want to double back on in this theme in light of a comment you made a few minutes back about interfaith dialogue as being yet another important theme in your work. At the College Institute, we have evolved relatively recently in the course of my career in sophistication and also in just raw commitment, dedication of resources of time and money and human energy to not just death and dying, but all of the rippled universe around it that we are becoming increasingly sensitive to. Not only in relatively short order, meaning in the span of a decade or less, but under the rather explicit influence of our Christian brethren in the United States, who seem to have had a much more highly developed pastoral culture around this. I want to ask you your impressions of it, the speed of it, uh, where we still need to work and where we can look with some satisfaction as having really gained ground.
1: I agree that there's been really extraordinary progress. I mean, I think the society has progressed as well. I might even call it a revolution in society at large in the understanding of the spiritual dimension of illness Mm -hmm. uh, and wellness. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, medical associations gradually and hospitals gradually coming to understand that you're really not providing good medical care if you're not also uh, attending, attending to, to the soul. That's not a First Amendment problem. That's, you know, <laughs> right. that's, that's asking right. the patient. That's not being afraid uh, to, to ask the patient, what, how, how are you experiencing this? You right. know, What about this other part of you that's not located in a particular organ? So I think there's been really, really tremendous uh, progress. In the field in general, the chaplaincy field, and ge- field in general, and certainly, I mean, well, so I, I at, was around at the Jewish
0: seminaries by all means. Uh, we-
1: absolutely, and even you know, the National Association for Jewish Chaplains. You know, it's not that there haven't been Jewish resources before. I don't know if there was any different in Orthodox communities. I mean, in 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 a Jewish community in which. Bikur Cholim had really been practiced. Visiting the, visiting the sick as a mitzvah practice had really been, not just speaking about the dying, but, but about the ill in general, in communities in which visiting the sick, making ourselves present um, at the bedside of people, in need in people who are suffering and accompanying the dead and caring for mourners and so on, in communities, dare I say, sort of mitzvah-based communities mm-hmm. in which everyone, quote-unquote, was engaged in that, maybe maybe those were communities in which there didn't need to be a revolution, mm-hmm, right? Right, right? That kind of care really was happening, maybe in a, in a different way. But bracketing that then, I think, in non-orthodox Judaism over a period of decades, the sense was, well, that, that's something, that's stuff the rabbi does. So the combination of our now living in a generation in which it's much more possible. there's so many more resources available there's to more encourage language people at our disposal. We and, can more talk encur- about it. and more encouragement yes, to say yes, yes, it's a hard caring, conversation and, yeah, you yeah. Know, and, and and yes, you, you go ahead and ask your parent what kind of right. treatment they want and don't don't want.
0: In other words, it's one thing for American society or Western society at large to confront with uh, greater alacrity and clarity and expertise, how to talk to your aging mom or dad about what they want. It's admittedly hard, but we're better at it. For the the Jews, I dare say, at the risk of generalizations or overgeneralizations, certainly in the non-Orthodox world, yes, that's a step. But for us, to talk overtly, spiritually, at all about this, to invoke God, to invoke the state of the soul, to me that feels like a a real change. Yes, we had caring communities and Bikur Cholim, and, and certainly there's always been the traditional Levayat met you know, where, where we would have ways to help.
1: At, attending the dead. Yeah.
0: But we wouldn't talk about spiritual things in spiritual language openly as much as we do now, I think. To me, that's a, a major component that feels like the Jews have been playing catch up a bit.
1: Over the past 30 years, parts of the Jewish community that have have undergone a kind of spiritual awakening. One piece of this in the late Enlightenment period, there was a way in which, in order to be, we thought as a people, our non, we non-Orthodox Jews, that in order, the price of freedom and emancipation was to jettison all that weird, right. you know, mystical, faithful stuff. So we needed need to become secularists, and we became secularists with a with a passion. And then comes the Holocaust and enormous trauma, and a lot of people saying, "How could you possibly don't talk to me about about God?" And so on. so, I think it's been about a 30-year period of of really opening that. Up somewhat. Um, I actually think the reform movement has been a leader in that. And as we're sitting here, I'm thinking of Debbie Friedman. Yeah. Um, the Misha Her Misha Sheberach, both the song it, itself as a, as a piece of music, as an invitation, as an invitation to prayer. Yes, yes. That composition of hers taught a lot of Jews how to pray.
0: Yeah, I agree. Which is
1: an extraordinary thing. And you hear
0: it in conversations. People cite that song, that melody, that uh, And
1: in setting. a synagogue setting, it often feels to me that that's the most intense moment and focused moment of prayer all morning.
0: Unscientifically, comments to me would indicate you're right.
1: And so skillful chaplains and rabbis and who, and you know whoever... Fine. You don't want to use the word God. Let's not use the word God. You're not allergic to the word. soul. Oh, you know, fine. it's not about the language. Let's find a way that we can be in this territory together and acknowledge it and explore how it actually is for you without my imposing the particular language. We have to talk about it this way because right, that's, right. you know, the language of the tradition uses. So, I think that's all been opening and deepening over these past. Couple of decades. I don't know what's next.
0: What, what do you feel is needful?
1: I would love to see many more non-orthodox Jews learn how to pray, illness or no illness, mm-hmm. right? And by that, I mean in in this context, I mean not necessarily learn how to daven. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a traditional davener. I love, 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 love. Been a daily davener for oh my gosh, 50 years. You know, um, love the liturgy, but but in this context, I mean, learn how to. Pray. Mm-hmm. I don't care what language, which language, or what Witching kind of language, right. but to develop a relationship with the holy. I mean, I'm also a spiritual director, so mm-hmm. you know, it's another piece of my work is about midwifing and, and witnessing people in exploring mm-hmm. how the, call it the divine, call it the holy, call it the one, call it reality, call it the beyond, whatever it is, is present in their lives. You know, it's a, a little bit more healing of the personal Holocaust trauma. That is to say, don't talk to me about, you know, deity or justice in the universe or whatever. And maybe recovering some of what we lost in our emancipation into... Modernity.
0: I have to say, uh, speaking purely for myself, it is the Enlightenment part of me, not the post-Holocaust part of me, that most bridle[s] at any language of spirituality of God or what or what have you. Concomitantly, the associations with what feels like Christian language it takes. It took me a long time to feel comfortable with the word Hallelujah. Hmm. <laughs> which is hmm. the irony hmm. of ironies. <laughs> and I think I'm not alone.
1: Oh, for sure. You hear that all the time. Faith. Yeah, The right, word right. faith. I a freak out. Not to mention <laughs> salvation. But right, right,
0: salvation. Right, right. right? Forget that redemption. Yeshua. Yeah, right. Yeah. right.
1: My first teachers about praying in this way were Christian chaplains. Yeah,
0: yeah I'm not surprised. I do hear that theme.
1: I, I could, you know, watching my Christian colleagues pray do these, like, spontaneous, like, they open, they were at the bedside, and suddenly they would open their mouths, and poetry would Mm -hmm. come out, and I would like, wait, wait, get me a book, (laughs) like, where's my, you know, (laughs) where's where's my (laughs) sinner, where's, no, no, wait, what, 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 is it time for mincha, you know, whatever, what, what, what text should I recite Uh, for this moment, which, you know, can also be a beautiful thing, but that's where I... Yeah. began to learn to pray in that way. And, and, and then, of course, when we open our hearts and develop more of an, more of an openness to call it the presence or, mm-hmm. or just call it the spiritual dimension of you know, moments of life, when we open to that in random moments, not in synagogue, you know, wh- wherever it is, then it, it completely enriches when we take that capacity of opening to the holy, shall we say, back to the sidur, then of course that then you have people actually praying and right. not just reciting. Right. right. Know, right.
0: If if you can get out to the understanding and then come back to the to the sidur. I, I'm thinking of Ein Kelohenu. In Moshienu, who is like our God, who is like our, our Savior. <laughs> and uh, in Spanish, which many synagogues have adopted the Sephardic one, uh-huh. uh, Tu el Muestro Salvador. And you can see people just seeing that song and looking at Salvador and it getting all weird. And if they had gone through the process you just said, they would come back to the Sidur reading Moshienu, understanding what it means in the first place, or and coming across Salvador without feeling wigged out.
1: Now, in in spiritual direction, just to be clear, when I'm sitting with someone as a spiritual director, they they know I'm a rabbi. I'm not pushing them to right. well, daven no, in no. any you know specific ways, but as a rabbi, sort of writ large. It's just what's arising for me in conversation yeah. with you today. I would like to see more Jews opening more to to prayer and to and to spirit, and and it would be a good thing for Jewish life right, if, right, if right. they that's, did. That's
0: right. <laughs> we'll agree. Yeah, it's a good thing. So I have one question that I want to ask you again. I'm curious about your assessment of the world around us. This time in American history and popular culture and media and the news cycle begs this question. So. Um, here it goes. I would like to ask you to characterize the glass ceiling specifically in the combined universe of our two movements, the reform movement and the conservative movement. As a whole, break it down whatever you you deem fit, but tell me about that glass ceiling as you see it today. Is it completely intact? Is it cracking? Is it shattered? What are women butting their heads up against when they rise?
1: Uh, I could talk about this a great length, of course. Um, I mean, the short answer is significantly cracked, absolutely. I mean, I'm so aware that we're you and I are having this conversation about a month after, is it, you know, the Harvey Weinstein, nice, you yeah. know, in the midst of just today was a time where Newsweek declared the Me Too movement to be the quote-unquote person of the yes, year. I saw that so in. so we are right in the middle of a an, an very powerful, I would say, awakening. I mean, it's not simple stuff, Indeed. but my hopeful spin about it is that we we are in a, a, a major time of social awakening about relationships between men and women and the full humanity of women and what it means to be a man and the role of sexuality and the workplace and and so on. So I I think that's for the good, just as, you know, sometimes you have to lance a wound in order to get it to heal. You know, we are in the period of, you know, ripping all of this open. And I I think it's okay to say publicly that there are lots and lots of women rabbis who have Me Too stories. Mm. So I don't know if you were asking me about the you know rabbis, it, well, I was women rabbis. a
0: the glass ceiling. But I think that these are these are related phenomena. There's a there's an there's an ecosystem in which we live, and these things overlap and they they affect one another. I wasn't asking about me too, but I don't think it's irrelevant when we also ask the question: Are women rising and then bumping up against the glass ceiling because the the we we still have a lot of olam le'takein, we still have a lot of or do you feel more optimistic that it's it's, it's really the sky's the limit uh, with respect to women advancing in our
1: movement? In our movements? Um, no, I don't, I don't think the sky's the limit at all. There, There's some women, you know, just as a black man could be president doesn't mean that we're just fine and anki-dori with race relations in the United States, you know, that there are a certain number of extraordinarily gifted women who are now, you know, senior rabbis of major Major shuls shuls and organizations and so on. You know, no question that that's possible, but there's also no question. I mean, I know, I I think it's true in the reform movement, certainly. In conservative, there's subtle sexism in um, search committees, and, you know, the movement says... You're not allowed to. You know, we won't mm. send you candidates if you you know, if you're explicit. Right, right. Uh, just right. as, you know, federal Drug law, you know, is arguably very much race-based. Ah, it's illegal yes. right. if you the, the say w- it, we're going we're to do this because w- we hate black people, and so we're going to make the penalties for crack cocaine, you know, greater. Cocaine, so, the, cocaine, so it's right. it's gone underground. It's not, you know, mm-hmm. on the explicit level anymore. It's coded, right? Um, but it's coded. No question, but the possibilities for women are much greater. And there's also no question that that there there's still all kinds of barriers, both institutionally historically and humanly and some of it malignant and some of it just right. a matter of implicit right. bias and we still have a lot of work to do look i was ordained 32 years ago and there has been tremendous progress
0: well i want to thank you for taking the time it's really been a pleasure to talk to you it's and really been a pleasure
1: you. it's really been a pleasure to get to know you I too i look
0: forward to future conversations me too you've been listening to the college commons bully pulpit podcast produced by the hebrew union college jewish institute of religion We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.